nothing to comment about. Is the sweetheart you married the husband you expected him to be? Has the war created new problems for you in your marriage? It's from Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico. Well, we meet in an hour of change and challenge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Backroads of History a podcast where we explore some of the more obscure people, activities, and events in history. I'm your host, Jeff Chestnut, and with me is a woman who was disappointed to learn that fantasy football was not at all what she thought, my lovely and talented wife, Dawn Chestnut. Hey, Jeff. What are you doing with those cards? I'm working on a new magic trick. Here, take a card, but don't let me see it. Okay. Okay, now memorize it. Yeah. Okay, now put it back in the deck, and I'll make your card rise to the top by undetectable means. What was that? That was misdirection, my dear. Your card is now on the top of the deck, and you didn't even see how I did it. Those better not be my good plates, mister. Oh, don't worry about those. It's a small price to pay for the artistry and entertainment value. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so why are you getting back into magic again? I thought that was a phase that you kind of grew out of. One never grows out of amazement and astonishment. But you know what occurred to me? (laughs) No. What? Magicians rely on cunning, deception, trickery, and misdirection. You know, now that I've said that, I wonder why there aren't more women magicians. Anyway, who else can you think of who rely on all those same things? I know. Politicians. All right, you have a point. But that wasn't exactly where I was going with this. Spies. Spies? What do you mean, spies? Well, think about it. A magician tries to deceive an audience who are scrutinizing his every move in order to perform an illusion. Spies need to perform some covert activities in front of people who are looking to catch them in a trick. You're right. But instead of a magician, spies are more like card cheats. Okay, how so? Well, think about it. A magician wants his audience to know that he's doing a trick. Okay. Afterwards, they know that they've been deceived. Uh Uh-huh. But it's in the card cheat's best interest for nobody to ever know that he's been crooked. If they find out, it could cost him his life. All right. I guess you're right. Oh, excuse me? I'm what? You heard me. I'm man enough to admit when you're right. I know, but it just sounds so good to my ears. Well, maybe they didn't know of any good gambling cheats, because when the CIA needed an expert on deception and trickery, They hired a professional magician. Really? Yep. One of the most influential American magicians in history, and as a part of the most controversial secretive operation the CIA was ever involved with. Okay, now this sounds interesting. Tell me more about it. Okay. John Mulholland was a big man, standing six feet, three inches tall, with broad shoulders, and reports say exceptionally large hands. You know what they say about men with large hands? Yeah, that they can palm cards very well. That's what I meant. 
Yeah, I figured. Okay, Mulholland was also one of America's preeminent magicians in a time before television when magicians were a major force in entertainment. Now, this was a time when magicians wore tuxedos with carnations in their lapels and played in front of packed theaters and concert halls, and not dressed in jeans and a t-shirt, accosting people on the street demanding, Hey! Hey! Let me show you something. You sound a little bitter. Uh, I just prefer to have my magic with some artistry involved, not just a series of tricks. Anyway, while Mulholland was a wonderful stage magician, he preferred close-up and parlor magic, magic that could be played for a small crowd or even individuals. He was considered the greatest close-up magician of his day. That doesn't sound nearly as lucrative. No, it wasn't. But in a time when the preeminent magician of his, or possibly any age, Howard Thurston, required eight train cars in which to carry his show, Mulholland only needed a small suitcase. And he was still famous enough to be invited to perform for the Roosevelts in the White House on eight separate occasions and travel around the world entertaining emperors, sultans, and queens. Now, when performing domestically and not in the White House, Mulholland primarily performed for the elite titans of industry in New York City. Well, how did he get started in, in magic? The same way most magicians do. At the age of five, he saw a performance by world-famous magician Harry Keller and was entranced. From that time on, he wanted to be a magician. When he was 13, he began taking private lessons from a man named John William Sargent for $5 a lesson. Sargent was a former president of the American Society of Magicians and would later serve as private secretary to Harry Houdini. Sargent not only taught young John magic tricks, but also taught him about some of the history and literature of magic as well. At 15 years of age, John performed his first magic show. That's pretty impressive. So he was a professional from a very young age. Yes, though there's a big difference between getting paid to do something and making a living at it. Now, John never did get a college degree, although he attended classes at both Columbia University and New York City College. He taught industrial arts at a New York City high school for a while and was a book salesman and even taught at Columbia before going into magic full-time. In the meantime, he became a magic historian. He loved magic history and began accumulating information and artifacts having to do with it. His biographer, magician Ben Robinson, said that Mulholland never threw anything away. At one time, he had the largest collection of magic memorabilia in the world. He gave a lecture in Boston about magic around the world, illustrating his talk with magic effects from each place. This was one of the first, if not the first, magic lecture known. Today, magicians lecture all over the place. In fact, most lectures are just magicians going to magic clubs, and their lectures are basically sales pitches for whatever tricks or techniques they have to sell. I should interrupt you here, honey. I think we should tell our listeners that Jeff is an amateur magician. Okay, very amateur. Yes, but we have attended a number of these kind of lectures. Yeah, I love the lectures and workshops, and sure enough, I usually drop some bucks for the books or tricks they're hawking, which mostly go on my bookshelves or my magic closet to collect dust. But we can thank John Mulholland for starting the tradition of the magician as a lecturer. So is that why he's one of the most influential American magicians ever? 
because of his lectures? No. I mean, the lectures are a part of it, and the respect he had from other magicians for his skills were too, but his influence extended far beyond that. As an author, he wrote multiple books and articles about the practice and history of magic, puppetry, and communication, some of which are still in print today. Have you read any of them? Yeah, I think I have a couple of them, yes. Wow. He, like his good friend Harry Houdini, was also a confirmed skeptic of spiritualists and mediums and wrote a book called Beware Familiar Spirits, exposing some of the scams associated with the field. He consulted with numerous magicians on their acts and invented and refined tricks and illusions and wrote the magic entries for such publications as Encyclopedia Britannica, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and was the only magician at that time to ever have been listed in Who's Who in America. But Mulholland's greatest influence was when, in 1930, he became the editor of The Sphinx, at that time the largest and most respected magic journal in the world. In fact, The Sphinx, while no longer being published, still has legendary status among practicing magicians. As the editor of The Sphinx, Mulholland practically directed the course of American magic for two decades, contributing articles and editorials and, more importantly, deciding what would be put into print in this influential journal, at least until June 1953 when Mulholland ceased publication of The Sphinx. So if The Sphinx was so successful and influential, why did he stop publishing it? Well, the reason Mulholland gave was that his health no longer permitted the stress and that his doctor ordered him to stop editing and publishing and just stick to his shows. So why was he ill? Well, the stress of putting out the Sphinx really had taken its toll on Mulholland. He was a heavy smoker and had ulcers and arthritis. He probably really could have used a break from the Sphinx, but that wasn't the whole or even the main reason he stopped publishing it. Okay. What was the reason? Well, John Mulholland had gone to work for the CIA. The CIA? Yep. It sounds like someone was really thinking out of the box. I wonder why no one ever thought of using a magician before for spying. Well, actually, they had. Harry Houdini had spied on the Russian and German militaries for Scotland Yard while he was touring during World War I. How much information did he get? Well, probably not a lot, but as an international celebrity and performer... Houdini could access portions of those countries while performing that may have been closed to other Westerners. So while he may not have had access to military plans and stuff, he could give an idea of troop strength, numbers, and movements. In World War II, British magician Jasper Maskelin either won the war for the Allies, if you believe him, or entertained the troops with card tricks, if you believe his detractors. So which was it? Well, as usual in these cases, there's probably a bit of truth to both sides. My suspicion is that he was probably not as vital of a cog as he claimed, but his side of the story is much more fun, so we'll go with that. Well, never let the truth stand in the way of a good story. Right. But there probably is some truth to Maskelyne's claims, and I'll give you the other side as well. Jasper Neville Maskelyne, don't do it. What? Make fun of his name. Don't. <laughs> I'm hurt. Do you really think I'd make fun of a name like Jasper Neville? Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, 
Maskelyne was a pretty famous stage magician in England and was the son of Neville Maskelyne, also a famous magician. When World War II broke out, Maskelyne joined the Royal Engineers and convinced his superiors that he could be useful in designing camouflage. The story has it that he convinced his superiors of his skills by making a German battleship appear on the River Thames using only mirrors and a model ship. I can see how that would be impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know if it's true or not, but that's the story. Now, Maskelyne found camouflage training boring. He said that a lifetime of hiding things on stage has taught me more about camouflage than rabbits and tigers will ever know. That sounds pretty arrogant. Yeah, one thing about Maskelyne is he never underestimated his own abilities or importance. And Maskelyne apparently wasn't very successful at camouflage, you know, at least this iteration of him. But he was recruited by MI9, Britain's intelligence service for, and I love this, the Deception Department. Maskelyne was more successful at this, designing things like maps on playing cards, hollow shoe heels containing a survival kit, and saws in pocket combs. Basically, magic gimmicks adapted for soldiers. He was then appointed head of the brand new Camouflage Experimental Section, though it was a short-lived experiment and was soon disbanded and Masculine was transferred to the Entertainment Squadron where he did tricks for other soldiers until the end of the war. Now, if you listen to Masculine, his career was more interesting than that. He states that the Deception Division was his creation and that it was nicknamed the Magic Gang. He claims that he created entire armies of fake tanks and soldiers that confused German intelligence as to where the British Army was, leading to victory in the Battle of El Alamein. According to Maskelyne, he disguised the real tanks as trucks, cars, and vegetation. According to Maskelyne, his greatest success was disguising Alexandria, Egypt, and the Suez Canal so that the German bombers couldn't see it. Okay. How could he do that? I mean, you can't do that with mirrors and a model. Well, according to Maskelyne, that's exactly what he did. He states that he built a revolving cone of mirrors that made a field of light nine miles wide that disoriented the German pilots. Meanwhile, he had a mock-up of Alexandra complete with lighthouses, fake anti-aircraft batteries, and buildings constructed miles away. Well, that sounds pretty smart. Why don't people think that he did that? Well, according to the latest research, a prototype of the cone of mirrors was actually built and tested, but was never used as it was found to be ineffective. Also, there's no record of the magic gang ever existing. Now, some of the other things, like the fake tanks, camouflaging real tanks and stuff, really happened, but there's evidence that Maskelyne wasn't involved, but was encouraged to take credit for it. Why would they want to encourage him to take credit? Why not give the credit to the guys who actually did it? A couple of reasons. First, it moved attention away from the guys who did the actual work, allowing them to work without distracting and free of fear from being targeted. Secondly, it was thought that the Allies would have more confidence in the efficacy of the camouflage if a world-renowned magician created it rather than an anonymous engineer in a lab somewhere. I guess it might also discourage the Germans if they knew that a magic trick was being used against them. So what happened to him? What happened to who? You know, the magic guy. Who? 
Masklin, the guy who we're talking about. Yeah, I know. I just wanted to see how badly you'd mangle his name. He did, did pretty well, really. One source I read said that Maskelyne repeated his claims so often that he came to believe them himself. He received no official acknowledgement or acclaim, however, which, for a narcissist, was more than he could stand. And, according to the Guardian newspaper, he died an embittered drunk in Kenya. That's kind of sad. I wonder if he knew Digby. He ended up in Kenya, too. I don't know. For those of you who don't know what Don's talking about, check out episode six on Digby Tatham Warder, one of the most flamboyant personalities in military history. You'll be glad you did. All right, now let's get back to John Mulholland. Did he do anything for World War II? Well, Mulholland's contribution to the World War II effort was to entertain the troops, and he also wrote a book entitled The Art of Illusion that was distributed to soldiers to boost their morale. So why did the CIA recruit Mulholland? Well, this was in 1953. World War II and the Korean War were over, and you know what war we were involved in at that time, right? Well, 1953. It's a little too early for Vietnam. Ah, the Cold War. Exactly. War had evolved from being fought on the battlefield to being fought in the shadows, utilizing espionage and, like we said at the top, there's a natural overlap between magicians and spies. But you also said that his involvement in the CIA was controversial. So why was it controversial? Well, it wasn't him that was so controversial, but the program he was involved with was extremely controversial, and Mulholland himself may or may not have played a role in one of the most controversial results to come out of the program. Which program is it? Okay, so at this time, the main opponent of the United States was the Soviet Union. Yeah. Both the U.S. and the Soviets had nukes, so conventional warfare was just madness. But in the United States, there was a real sense that communism was poised to take over the world and to complete what Hitler could not. Thus, the Red Scare in the United States. Yeah, with Alger Hiss, Joseph McCarthy, the blacklists, and everything. Exactly. And now we look back on it and wonder what all the fuss was about, but at the time it was a very real worry. The Soviets were involved in a lot of real-world espionage and already moved into much of Eastern Europe since World War II. While McCarthy was hyperbolic and unethical, he wasn't entirely wrong. Our government, including our intelligence agencies, were being infiltrated by Soviet bloc spies. But one thing that really concerned the CIA was the mind-control gap. Okay, I've heard of the missile gap. That's where one country has more missiles than another and can do a lot more damage. But what is the mind control gap? What, the Soviets having more mind control capabilities than we do in the U.S.? Well, that's exactly what it means. A new term entered the world lexicon, brainwashing. During the Korean War, U.S. prisoners appearing dazed confessed that the U.S. was committing war crimes like utilizing chemical or biological weapons. In show trials in Eastern Europe, defendants appearing zombie-like confessed to all sorts of atrocities. The United States was highly concerned that the Soviets had developed techniques or, more likely, drugs that would give the government control over the minds of people. A truly horrifying thought. I mean, after all, if a drug could actually do this, What if someone slipped the drug to a president? 
Or what if a technique like hypnosis would allow someone to manipulate someone else close to the president, possibly leading to assassination or worse? In 1959, in fact, a novel came out that encapsulated all these fears. It was called The Manchurian Candidate. But on the flip side, we could do the same thing to others. Yeah, but at this time, we were concerned that the Soviet Union was way ahead of us on the technology, thus the mind control gap. And so this controversial program was meant to catch up in mind control. Yep. In 1953, Acting Assistant Director of the CIA, Richard Helms, with the full approval of CIA Director Alan Dulles, instituted program MKUltra. Okay, I've heard about MKUltra. But I thought that was just a conspiracy theory. I didn't think it was actually real. Oh, no, it was real, all right. But you're right. MKUltra has become a part of just about every conspiracy out there, from Roswell to the Kennedy assassinations. The mandate of MKUltra was multifold. One 1955 document listed multiple goals, including developing, number one, Substances which will promote logical thinking and impulsiveness to the point where the recipient would be discredited in public. Two, substances which increase the efficiency of mentation and perception. Three, materials which will cause the victim to age faster or slower in maturity. Four, materials which will promote the intoxicating effects of alcohol. Five, Materials which will produce the signs and symptoms of recognized diseases in a reversible way so that they may be used for malingering, etc. Six, materials which will cause temporary or permanent brain damage and loss of memory. Seven, substances which will enhance the ability of individuals to withstand privation, torture, and coercion during interrogation and so-called brainwashing. Eight, Materials and physical methods which will produce amnesia for events preceding and during their use. Nine, physical methods of producing shock and confusion over extended periods of time and capable of surreptitious use. Ten, substances which provide physical disablement such as the paralysis of the legs, acute anemia, etc. Eleven, substances which will produce a chemical that can cause blisters. 12. Substances which will alter personality structure in such a way that the tendency of the recipient to become dependent upon another person is enhanced. 13. A material which will cause mental confusion of such a type that the individual under its influence will find it difficult to maintain a fabrication under questioning. 14. Substances which will lower the ambition and general working efficiency of men when administered in undetectable amounts. 15. Substances which promote weakness or distortion of the eyesight or hearing faculties, preferably without permanent effects. 16. A knockout pill, which can surreptitiously be administered in drinks, food, cigarettes, as an aerosol, etc., which will be safe to use provide a maximum of amnesia, and be suitable for use by agent types on an ad hoc basis. And lastly, 17, a material which can be surreptitiously administered by the above roots and which, in a very small amount, will make it impossible for a person to perform physical activity. 
that's a pretty scary list for any government to have control of. I mean, if you think about number, what, 16? I mean, that sounds like a the, the date rape drug. Well, yeah, exactly. Now, more proximally, the goal was mainly to develop better, sometimes chemically enhanced interrogation techniques. Some people say that the ultimate end goal was to create that Manchurian candidate for use against our enemies. Now, the person selected to head up MKUltra was the brilliant but eccentric biochemist Sidney Gottlieb. Gottlieb described himself as the CIA's own Dr. Strangelove, but he was also called less flattering epithets like the Dirty Trickster and the Poisoner-in-Chief. The day that MKUltra was approved, Gottlieb went to see John Mulholland. But why Mulholland? He was a magician, not a pharmaceutical researcher. No, but once the drugs were developed, the CIA needed a way to surreptitiously administer them. What better way than with some sleight of hand, dropping a pill into a drink or salting some food with a powder? Gottlieb wanted Mulholland to write a manual for CIA operatives describing techniques for administration of pharmaceutical agents. Mulholland later added a section on covert dropping or picking up secret communications. Do we have access to this manual today? We do. In fact, it's one of the few intact documents we have pertaining to MKUltra. And why is that? In 1973, rumors about the existence of MKUltra began to float around Washington. This was post-Vietnam War, and Americans were much less trustful and accepting of government practices, especially if they were totally unethical, which many of MKUltras were. During the Watergate hearings, there were revelations of illegal spying on American civilians by much of Americans' intelligence apparatus. Like today. Much like today. A select Senate committee was formed under Idaho Senator Frank Church to investigate these abuses. Because of the nature of MKUltra, the now director of CIA ordered that all documents pertaining to Project MKUltra be destroyed. If they were all destroyed, then how do we have a copy of the manual? Well, in 1977, well after the Church Commission was finished, about 20,000 documents relating to MKUltra were found mixed among financial records due to a clerical error. Now, most of these were heavily redacted and many others remained classified. In 2001, some of the surviving documents from MKUltra were declassified. The existence of a magic manual was rumored at CIA headquarters for years, but it was only after these records were declassified that, in 2007, historians H. Keith Melton and Robert Wallace uncovered two of Mulholland's manuals, the only complete documents that are known to have survived the purge. Some operational applications of the art of deception and recognition signals. They published this with a foreword by former deputy director of the CIA and amateur magician himself, John McLaughlin, and with an added introduction by themselves under the title of The Official CIA Manual of Trickery and Deception. Have you read it? Yeah, I have. It's really an easy read. Remember that it was written for laymen, not professional magicians. It's pretty much what you'd expect, just surreptitious ways to administer a substance to someone's drink or food, how to manage the situation, misdirection and masking. 
The introduction is really just a good introduction to magic as a whole in that it talks about the naturalness of the performer, about not drawing attention to whatever act you're doing, and so on. What many people don't realize is that much of magic is simple. As magicians, we love it when people invent all kinds of complicated ways that we may have done a trick because that distracts from the way the trick is actually done. I heard a magician just last week say that the greatest thing about people thinking that objects go up our sleeves is that objects rarely go up our sleeves, but it concentrates attention on our sleeves when the spectators should be looking elsewhere. That's the primary thing this book shows. You don't need a watch that ejects needles full of poison. You can poison just as effectively sliding a pill off a matchbook cover into someone's coffee as you're lighting a cigarette. A Boston Globe review states, Today, Mulholland's account of real-world stagecraft amounts to an etiquette manual for a lost moment in history. They said this because some of the methods rely on lighting someone else's cigarette, a woman in distress with a man trying to assist her, hiding things within a necktie, that sort of thing. So were any of these methods actually used? Well, according to McLaughlin, no. But he's a pretty biased observer, and knowing of some of the CIA's other trickery or attempted trickery, I'd be kind of surprised if they weren't used. Like what kind of trickery? Well, the CIA really, really wanted to assassinate or at least discredit Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. And some of the ways they tried to do this arranged from the ingenious to the just downright bizarre. Yeah? Well, there were so many attempts to poison or explode one of Castro's cigars that the Cubans finally developed their own strain of tobacco, the Cohiba, in order to protect him. There were even plans to lace cigars with botulinum toxin when Castro appeared on an American talk show. Only when a senior CIA official asked how they could assure that the host, David Susskind, or others wouldn't smoke him, that the plan was dismissed. There was talk about lacing a cigar with LSD or spraying aerosolized LSD into a radio booth during one of his frequent radio speeches to his country in order to make him appear incoherent. There were even plans to plant exploding seashells on Castro's favorite beaches. It, one of the more bizarre plots, though, was to take advantage of Castro leaving his boots outside his hotel door to be shined whenever he traveled outside of Cuba. The CIA planned to put a depilatory substance in his boots that would make his beer fall out and ruin his macho image. When Castro canceled his trip, the plan was scrapped. It wasn't just Castro, though. The CIA prepared a poison toothpaste in order to poison Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba. The regional CIA director, upon receiving the toothpaste, threw it in the river. So were any of these ideas Mahalan's ideas? We don't know. You know, some were pretty clumsy ideas, which doesn't seem to fit Mulholland's way, but, you know, we can't know for sure. After writing his booklet, Mulholland was kept on the MK Ultra payroll for other projects. Projects like what? Well, some of his responsibilities were to design normal, everyday-looking objects to be able to hold something or to do something other than its apparent purpose. One instance of this is using a hollowed-out coin that an agent could carry a message or microfilm in. Now, this is a magic gimmick that is still used today, and by using this, it could go unscrutinized and be passed on to a contact under the guise of a normal business transaction. He designed all sorts of secret compartments to carry things, 
including people in it. Why people? Well, say you have an agent you need to get out of somewhere, but you know that agent is being watched. In one instance, Maholan, again using a technique using magic, designed a gas tank for a car that looked every bit like a normal gas tank, but there was a divider in it which someone could curl up in and hide. Or he devised a way, again using a magic technique, to squire someone away using bottles of water. How could you hide someone in a bottle of water? Well, not a single bottle of water, but imagine a delivery man delivering a pallet of bottled water someplace. You create a cavity in the middle of the water bottles for a person to hide. But wait, you can see right through water. Why not a pallet of Coca-Cola or something like that? Well, precisely because you can see right through water. If it was a pallet of Coke, someone might get suspicious that you were hiding someone. But imagine if you surround the person with a reflective layer. It would hide the person while providing the illusion that you could see right through the water. One time, they even put an agent in a real St. Bernard skin, put him in a crate with a recording of real St. Bernard noises, and drove him through the countryside under the excuse that they were taking their dog to the vets. Did Mahalan work on anything else? Yes, yeah. Remember that the CIA was very interested in things of the mind. At this time, ESP and telepathy, remote readings, and all that stuff were in the news. Frequently, someone would come to the CIA claiming some extraordinary power that the normal agents couldn't figure out. Now remember, Mulholland wrote a book on exposing just this very type of thing, so they would frequently call him up and ask him to check it out. Invariably, Mulholland would figure out what the person was actually doing, saving the CIA a lot of time, money, and headaches. Yeah, I can see a value in that. The CIA wouldn't want to waste resources going down some rabbit hole that didn't lead anywhere. Yeah, and there was an added benefit, too. What was that? Well, often these scam artists would work in pairs and use some sort of signaling method to communicate with each other. Mahalan knew all these tricks, and so he devised various nonverbal means of communications, like various body positions, seemingly innocuous gestures, and even the way someone laced their shoes could carry a message. Many of these methods are still used today, like whether a potted plant is on the right side of the porch could mean the coast is clear, while if it's on the left side, it could mean get out of town or cover's blown. With all the technology that we have today, do they still use those type of methods? Yeah, you know, because of all the electronic communication systems, it's become much easier to intercept messages. Okay, that makes sense. So did MK Ultra end up developing any mind control drugs? Well, none that I'm aware of, but if they did, you wouldn't expect them to tell us, would you? <laughs> yeah, I guess not. Now, what MKUltra is best known for, and what it is most controversial for, though, is experimenting with the drug LSD. Acid. Yeah. Yeah, before the hippies discovered it, LSD was thought to be a very promising psychoactive drug. It was extremely potent, so that only a tiny amount would have an effect, and it was thought that if you could control the effects, it might be useful as a truth drug for interrogations, a drug to cause psychosis like they planned with Castro, or even a mind control drug. They should have consulted Charles Manson about that. Yeah, he, he probably had much more success with the mind control effects than the CIA ever did. I'll bet. But from my understanding, you can't control the effects of LSD. 
You're right, but they didn't know that at the time, so they experimented heavily with it on both voluntary and involuntary subjects. Involuntary? Like prisoners? Yeah, but not only in prisoners. Who else? Well, initially, it was prisoners, mental patients, drug addicts, and prostitutes, or, as one CIA officer put it, anyone who couldn't fight back. In one instance, the CIA set up their own brothels in California, complete with one-way mirrors and recording devices, and they would drug the Johns and observe their reaction. They knew that the Johns wouldn't come after them because they wouldn't want to admit being in a brothel. Proving that the CIA doesn't totally lack a sense of humor, this project was called Operation Climax. But it wasn't only these unwilling people, they tested it on themselves, too. For science, of course. <laughs> of course. But they also surreptitiously administered it to their own agents and others as well. It wasn't entirely a joke that you didn't want to drink out of the office punch bowl at the CIA Christmas party. They did this without consent? Yes. Yeah, one of the things that they would do is slip someone LSD and interrogate them under bright lights, trying to get them to confess to something. They might keep them high for protracted long periods of time and threaten not to allow them to ever come down until they spilled the beans. That's torture. Yep, I told you it was controversial. That's not just controversial, that's wrong. Okay, you're preaching to the choir, babe. They also solicited college students as volunteers. This included Ken Kesey, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, he became one of the main proponents of LSD among young people in Northern California, sparking the hippie movement. Another of those volunteers was Robert Hunter, Jerry Garcia's best friend and a man closely involved with the Grateful Dead, also very influential in the San Francisco hippie movement. So the CIA pretty much single-handedly hooked the generation on drugs. Yeah, you know, I guess when you put it that way, well, no wonder that there are those out there that believe that the CIA introduced crack cocaine to the inner cities. They would do anything, it seems. Yeah, it does lend some additional weight to those claims, doesn't it? Now, you're starting to sound like a conspiracy theorist. Well, I don't necessarily believe that the CIA introduced crack into the cities. But as you know, A, I don't trust the government. B, I especially don't trust the intelligence apparatus of the government. And at this point, I'd like to say hello to any of our friends in the CIA, FBI, and especially the NSA who may be listening. And <laughs> C, the more I researched this, the more paranoid I became. So how about John Mahalan? Did he get involved in the LSD stuff? Well, you know, we've already determined that he wrote a manual on various ways to slip people things, but we don't have any evidence that he knew when, what, or to whom the drugs would be slipped. But he did become embroiled in possibly the biggest scandal to hit MKUltra. Bigger than what we've heard about already. Yeah. All right, let's hear it. On November 18, 1953, six Army scientists from Dietrich, Maryland, now Fort Dietrich, held a retreat in a lodge in Deep Creek Lake, Maryland. Hey, Deep Creek Lake, Maryland? That's where my parents are from. I grew up on that lake. I know. But your parents wouldn't have been invited to this meeting. These scientists, in collaboration with MKUltra, were working to develop strains of biological agents or chemical agents that would be capable of incapacitation of an enemy. One of these scientists was named Frank Olson. 
Olson was a biochemist whose specialty was the aerosol delivery systems for such agents. Now, this was in the midst of the LSD testing, and Sidney Gottlieb, head of MKUltra, was looking to test the effects LSD might have on a meeting or conference. So he had his assistant add a small amount of LSD to a bottle of liqueur that was to be served that evening. What happened? Well, Gottlieb recorded that the meeting became noticeably more boisterous. Olson complained that he didn't sleep well that night, but otherwise he seemed normal. By the time he returned home three days later, though, there was a huge difference. His wife reported that he was agitated, anxious, and depressed and kept saying, I'm going to have to resign. I've made a terrible mistake. But it wasn't his mistake. He was drugged against his will. Yeah, I don't think that's what he was talking about. There are some that think Olson had a crisis of conscience, that the purpose of his work, creating ways to poison or infect people, caused him to doubt himself and led him to ask to resign from the program. The next day, Olson submitted his resignation, but was apparently talked out of it by his superior, Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Ruitt. He seemed relieved at first, but the next day he seemed to be paranoid and agitated. Ruitt called on the CIA for help because of the top-secret nature of what he was working on. Ruitt and Gottlieb's assistant, Robert Lashbrook, the guy who dosed Olson in the first place, flew to New York City to see a CIA-approved physician. The doctor saw him twice that day and arranged to see him on the next day as well. On the way to see the doctor the next day, though, they made a stop to see John Mulholland. Why? No one knows. Yeah, it's very possible that Lashbrook just needed to see Mulholland anyway, and since they had a few minutes before the appointment, they just stopped on the way. Or it may have been that, because Olson was so depressed, Lashbrook thought that maybe visiting with Mulholland might cheer Olson up. We just don't know for sure. What we do know, though, is that the visit did not go well. What happened? We don't know that either. But during the visit, Olson became extremely suspicious and agitated, and the visit had to be cut short. Over the next couple of days, Olson's mental condition continued to deteriorate. He began acting psychotic and thought that the CIA was out to get him. They probably were. Well, we'll get to that. Well, that doesn't sound good. The doctor in Lashbrook agreed that Olson should be hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital in Rockville, Maryland, which was closer to Olson's home and had CIA-approved psychiatrists on staff. At the time, though, it was too late to travel back, so Olson and Lashbrook checked into a hotel in New York City. According to Lashbrook, Olson was in a good mood that night and was, quote, almost the Dr. Olson I knew before the experiment, end quote. They went to bed about 11 o'clock that night. At 2.30 a.m., Frank Olson crashed through the hotel window and fell 10 stories to his death. Instead of calling the police or the hotel management, Lashbrook's first call was to Gottlieb. When the police interrogated Lashbrook, he was difficult to get anything out of. He told the police that he suspected that Olson had been under a lot of stress, but the police suspected foul play. Police noticed that Lashbrook had a scrap of paper on him with the initials J.M., and a phone number. Now, Lashbrook refused to divulge anything about that, citing security concerns, but the number was Mulholland's. In the meantime, Gottlieb dispatched a team of CIA fix-it men 
who shut down the police investigation while never connecting Lashbrook with the CIA at all. The police thought it was due to a lover's spat. The CIA's official stance to the family was that Olson's death was a suicide caused by job stress. Internally, they listed the cause as the LSD that was given to him, but they didn't even release that publicly or to Olson's family, and they tried to hide it from the rest of the CIA that wasn't involved in MKUltra. Okay, that was in 1953. In 1975, Senator Nelson Rockefeller chaired a commission that looked into the CIA illegally spying on Americans. During those hearings, it was uncovered that the CIA had dosed an army operative with LSD and that the operative later threw himself out a window. Now, this was shocking and salacious news and made all the papers. When Olson's family read the newspaper, they immediately knew who this man was. One month later, the Olson family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the United States government. Good. So what did the government do? Well, they moved immediately to smooth over the reaction. President Gerald Ford invited Olson's wife and his son, Eric, to the White House, where he personally apologized on behalf of the government. CIA Director William Casey had the Olsons to lunch, where he also apologized and gave the Olsons what he claimed was the CIA file on Frank Olson's case. Congress quickly approved $750,000 as compensation for the Olsons, which, importantly, included a provision that no further lawsuits could be filed in the case. Frank Olson's son, Eric, though, never believed the official government explanation. What did he think happened? Well, he thought that by admitting the LSD story, the government was distracting from the real story. Could be right. Which was? Mind control and murder. After his mother died, Olson had his father exhumed so he could bury him next to his wife. In the meantime, he got a court order for another autopsy. That autopsy suggested that Olson may have been murdered by a blow to the head before he went through the window. But why would the CIA have killed him? Yeah, who knows? It may be that he knew too much and was threatening to expose MKUltra. Could also be that because of his mental state, the CIA felt that they can no longer trust him, or, as Olson suspects, that it was a mind control experiment gone terribly wrong. Eric Olson suspects that John Mulholland played a role in his father's death, possibly by using hypnotism or some other mental manipulation. Was Mulholland a hypnotist? No, that's the thing. He had no record of being a skilled hypnotist. As a matter of fact, he was pretty disdainful of hypnotists. Maybe that's just what they wanted people to think. Okay, now who sounds like a conspiracy theorist? Eric Olson said that even if Mulholland wasn't a skilled hypnotist, he may have been the best available, especially with the security clearance necessary. Olson believes that the visit to Mulholland was in order to conduct advanced interrogations, possibly hypnotism combined with pharmaceutical intervention. But as Olson says, even if hypnotism was not involved, I think the overall purpose is clear. They were exploring whether and to what extent they might distract my father, certainly the essence of the magician's art, for the purpose of taking his eye off the ball, making him forget creating amnesia. In trying to distract my father, they were taking a risk. The same techniques that ultimately might quiet him could also, if he detected what was going on, 
increases anxiety and fear. So what was Mulholland's role in Frank Olson's death? Possibly none. I'd even go as far as to say probably none. I suspect that it was coincidence that the team with Olson stopped by Mulholland's house on this close proximity with Olson's death. There are some who have theorized that because of Mulholland's size that he may have been the person to throw Olson through the window, but I think that's really stretching credibility. Personally, I think that it's just as likely that Olson was murdered as it is he committed suicide, but I really doubt that Mulholland was involved. I need to go onto the internet and research this myself. This is interesting stuff and scary. Just be warned that if you do, you'll find yourself in the weeds of conspiracy theory very quickly. Sirhan Sirhan's lawyer blames mind control by MKUltra for Sirhan's assassination of Robert Kennedy. And of course, there's a lot of chatter about MKUltra mind control being responsible for, first, Lee Harvey Oswald's assassination of John Kennedy, and then Jack Ruby's murder of Oswald in order to keep Oswald quiet. I'll also have you know that George H.W. Bush, William F. Buckley, and famous magician Harry Blackstone Jr. were all involved in the JFK assassination. Some of the logic was pretty fuzzy to me, but to the theorists, it's clear as day. So did anything happen to John Mulholland because of the Frank Olson incident? No, Mulholland continued to work for the CIA for at least five more years. Maybe it's longer. It's difficult to tell because of the destruction of the records. John Mulholland died in February 1970 at age 71 following a long illness. Mulholland's personal files were completely gone through and sanitized by the CIA. There's not one word in his files, and he was a hoarder, about his involvement with the agency. Mulholland's extensive magic library and collections were bought by one of the presidents of a savings and loan that was involved in the SNL scandal of the late 1980s. They were eventually seized and put in a government trust company. In 1991, magician David Copperfield outbid the Library of Congress, believe it or not, buying the collection for $2.2 million. It's now in a warehouse in Las Vegas where it's accessible to scholars, but not to the general public or curiosity seekers. What a fascinating story. Well, we would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you haven't done so, please go to iTunes and leave a review. It will help others find us, and please join us next time as we explore another one of those dusty back roads of history. Bye. Bye.